0: I'm so glad that you're here tonight. Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this evening, Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 1. We are in a series uh, that we began a number of weeks ago on our core values and our vision and our mission as a church here in Newburgh, Oregon. And um, what we've begun to uh, jump into in this series are our core values. Um, Our core values are, we have about 10 of them, and in theory, when you came in or last week, you got a bookmark. If you didn't get one, I'm sure there's some more out on the table, but they list out what our 10 core values are as a church. Now, why are these important? Well, our core values are the way that we're going to make decisions in this church. They become our metrics for success. There are going to be values that we talk about like I'm doing this evening. Uh, And then they're gonna become choices that we make and then eventually they will become the culture here at Saints Hill. And for many of you who are trying to figure out if this is a good fit for you, we want you to have the most information that you possibly can up front and know about our values. So um, that's the series that we're we're gonna be in probably through the end of December. Um, I'm really looking forward to some of our values so far. It's been awesome. If you've missed any of them, we have a podcast you can go to our website and listen to our podcast, or you can go to iTunes and we are on there. You just have to dig a little bit because it's brand new. So you got to like type it in and then scroll a ways to find it. But it's on there and uh, catch up with um, our values. We we began our first value with God is good. Last week we talked about the scriptures are authoritative and they tell us the truth that leads to freedom. So uh, go back, listen to those. Uh, But tonight we're talking about Uh, Jesus as Lord. Let's read uh, in Philippians chapter two, verse one. It says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. I just think it's so poignant for our church specifically because when you're starting a church family, there can be a temptation to do church instead of becoming Christ to one another. See, all of us have been to church before, at least most of us have been to other churches before. We like going to church, that's why you're here this evening, or someone you know likes going to church, and that's why you're here this evening. Um, And many of us know how to do church. But how many of you guys understand that you could do church and not do Jesus? Jesus. It's possible to gather, to worship, to learn, but to not put on the radical new identity as people under the lordship of King Jesus. So our third value as a church is this. Jesus is Lord. The entirety of experiencing the kingdom is a lordship issue, A number of years ago, my mom and I, my mom's in the back, we were having lunch at a restaurant downtown, and we just met up for lunch. And uh, we, right before um, we went to eat, we prayed. And uh, so we start to pray, and I get this thought, who is watching us? And I look around, I'm like, maybe I can make it look like I'm just talking to her, (laughs) and nobody's gonna know that I'm actually praying. I thought, well, why am I thinking that? Because the scriptures say that he's the desire of the nation. So really the truth is, is that everybody in this room wants him. They just don't know it yet. You know, we live in a time where people are desperate for the kingdom, but they think inside that they don't want the king. Many of us want all of the benefits of justice, grace, mercy, unconditional love, but we have a hard time with the source of all of that. People want really good kingdom things. Look around you, probably some of your friends, uh, people that you see on the news, hear about in articles. People want racism eradicated. How many, That's a great thing. I want that as well. They want abundance for the poor. They want peace instead of war. They want a loss of self-righteousness and an increase of humility in our leaders. Good stuff. But a pursuit of the byproducts of the kingdom at best tends to yield a different sort of inequality, and at worst, the control of others instead of empowerment of others. Because the king, Jesus, is the one who has been authorized to bring the kingdom, and when we chase after the kingdom without the king, we actually have a lack of leadership and it crumbles. See, as a community, we could chase after city renewal, community groups, evangelistic campaigns, discipleship curriculum, even social justice, and still miss Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to give us a better law or even a better way of living. He came to give you himself, to get his spirit in you. See, the kingdom isn't accessed through a plan, but a person. And if he isn't Lord, guess what? You don't get his kingdom. And this is difficult for many to stomach because within the confession of the lordship of Jesus is the cost of discipleship. Within the confession of the lordship of Jesus is the cost of discipleship. Um, Many of you guys know the story of Jesus and Peter at Caesarea Philippi. I I mentioned it last week. Um, But here's how the encounter with Jesus and Peter unfolds. Jesus says this, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? (laughs) Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King. And then watch what happens next. Next slide. From that time on, this is so like, this is Jehovah sneaky, as Jake says. Watch what happens. From that time on, You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. The understanding of who Jesus was created a responsibility to take up the same lifestyle. Peter, understanding who Jesus was, he felt it. It, it meant that his life needed to conform to Jesus' life. So then Jesus starts saying things like, yeah, so I'm going to suffer a bunch. I'm going to die. And by the way, y'all, you're going to too. And, J- and Peter's like, whoa, 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 time out. Your Lord And what that means is that I have to conform to you. I don't know if I want this anymore. Because in the kingdom, it's like king, like subject. Or like in a family, it's like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. When you come to Jesus, what you're saying is, God, I've made a mess of things. My relationships are fractured. My mind is conflicted. My heart is sad. I'm done with my way. Jesus, you are Lord. And what happens when you make that confession is you get Christ in you and you get in Christ, according to John chapter 17, and you start taking on the very shape of his life. And because there's no such a thing as a sacrifice for God that doesn't produce kingdom results, the kingdom begins to come through your death to self. The more you die, the more you see the kingdom. It's amazing. This is the humble mindset of Jesus that we read about in Philippians chapter 2. See, humility is the direct result of someone knowing who they are. If you don't know who you are, you'll be full of pride. If you, if you, if you know in who you are and it's settled and you're not looking for others' approval, you're going to be really humble. Jesus, knowing who he was, was able to take that mindset into action, say, I'm not gonna count equality with God something to be leveraged for me, but instead, I'll take myself to the lowest place, becoming the form of a slave for the sake of others, all out of a basis of, I know who I am. When we bow the knee and we proclaim his lordship, He gets authority over our lives. And discipleship is the king teaching you the profound truth that when he is king, you don't just enjoy the fruit of him being king. You also become the the thing that makes the fruit possible. Where can you find unconditional love without somebody dying to themselves? Have you ever seen unconditional love without somebody saying, I'll die to myself in this situation? Where can you find justice done from a pure heart without a deep sense of humility? I'm not going to control you. I'm going to do my best to do you just. Where can you find authority that empowers people without someone choosing to put others before themselves? See, when you come, when you make that confession, Jesus is Lord, what you do is you bring your life into alignment, and you say, teach me how to produce your lordship in every part of my life. It says in this passage that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when we say Jesus is Lord... What that means is that I'm not going to build a platform for my life to be seen from. I'm going to build an altar for my life to be sacrificed on. It's not your job to try to build a platform so that people get to see your life. It's your job to build an altar to, sacri- to become a living sacrifice. So I have three things for us tonight. Three if then statements. If Jesus is Lord, then three different things. And these are three areas that I think Jesus wants to set us free as a church in. Three things that he's looking at St. Seleni saying, I want to set you guys three, free in these three different areas. So if Jesus is Lord, then firstly, our idolatry must go. All right, idolatry must go. You know, it's very easy to relegate idolatry to people who actually make wooden and gold items that they worship, right? Like, that's idolatry. But the truth is this. Whatever you fear most, your worship is likely close by. Another way to put it is whatever you fear, the adverse is often what you treasure. You didn't get that. It's like this. If you fear loneliness, you're going to treasure a companion. If you fear insignificance, you're going to treasure attention. If you're terrified, nobody's going to think that I'm worth anything or that my life has anything to say. And so I need the likes, I need the followers. If you have a fear of being on the wrong side of history, you will treasure popular opinion. So dangerous. And these treasures then become what we worship. And what we worship becomes our Lord, and this leads us to idolatry. And we all of a sudden find ourselves with this willingness to make sacrifices to achieve what we want from our treasure. I'm willing to do anything just to get the approval of that person. I'm willing to do anything just to keep this person around in my life. I'm willing to do it. I think for many of us, we are the lords of our own lives. Choosing the direction, the path that we take, we are the arbiters of our own morality as if truth was something relative. We are the ones who decide what is good and what is not for us. And and it it comes at a very convenient time. Technology has helped us actually uh, figure out our metrics in relation to our idolatry. Um, all of the Fitbits, the, the watches that count your steps and tell you when to get up, the likes, the retweets, the followers, they have all created a way for you to keep track of your metrics of your own personal kingdom, your success or your failure. And so the other day I, was, I heard the 16-year-old and what it looked like to be a 16-year-old talking about his personal brand. What has happened but a life that is directed towards that is meaningless and it's quick to break our hearts and it's not suitable for the life of a Christian. We don't build a life and then ask God to bless it. I've done this before. A number of years ago, I was out at a conference and uh, that I was leading. I had our young adult uh, crew there from the church that I used to work at and I remember just having this realization, oh my gosh, I have built a Christian good life. It looks good, it has all the right components to it. I've built this life and I've asked him to bless it. And he said, and I remember it was just a severe mercy. It was a severe grace of him just coming to me, cutting me and saying, you don't build a life and ask me to bless it, you surrender your life and give yourself to me. Very different posture. See if I have fear in my life that is leading me to worship or treasure something other than God what it tells me is that there are still pieces of my heart that have yet to be taken by the love of Jesus It's not for shame it's not so that you can get disappointed and so that you can identify oh I do still fear this so Lord it says with your love there's no more of this fear So put the fear of the Lord in me that I might rightly align my heart and desires in life aim with your love. I actually think that most Christians haven't gone to the nth degree of his love for them. If there's one thing that we can't exaggerate, it's how much he loves us. And yet it's the one thing we're afraid of exaggerating all the time. We fear exaggerating his love because we have a fear of being let down. If I exaggerate his love, and it turns out that the situation where I thought I would see his love doesn't happen the way that I thought it should happen, then I'm let down in the natural, and I'm confused about my relationship with him. This shows our cards a little bit, because what this shows us is that our relationship with him was more based on us receiving things from him rather than getting him himself, So when we say that we can't exaggerate his love, what it means is that I want to go deep with you. I don't care what it looks like, what I get in return. I'm seeking first you. If he is Lord, then what I'm doing is I'm putting a target on all of my idols based in fear. And it's just like a target and he takes his little love bow and arrow and he's like, that's where I need to hit you. So I just constantly am saying, God, oh, I still fear there. Hit me with your love. (laughs) I just have that song, Hit Me With Your Best Shot in my head right now. It's like, (laughs) fire away right here. (laughs) Secondly, if Jesus is Lord, then the political spirit must go. Oh, we're going to ruffle some feathers with this one. It is incredibly important for us to understand the political climate of the day and age in Philippi when Paul claimed that Jesus was Lord. Um, Many of you have probably heard this before, but he was directly saying in this passage when he says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, what he's saying is, Caesar is not Jesus is Lord, so Caesar is not Lord, which was the popular contention in that day and age that Caesar was a God and thus Lord. And specifically in Philippi, I I read this historian, she said this, she said the imperial family, including Augustus, his wife Livia, and her grandson Claudius were all worshipped in the imperial cult in Philippi specifically. When Paul wrote this letter, so each member of the imperial family, they understood that at their death, they would be translated into a God that would have power on earth and in the heavens. So you've got to imagine when Paul writes this to the church in Philippi, he's like, every knee will bow, and they're like, oh yeah. And he's like, every tongue will confess, and they're like, yep, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wait, what? This is incredibly dangerous to say incredibly radical, incredibly subversive, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's actually still radical and still subversive today. Though most of us don't, I hope, deify our politicians, the claim that Jesus is Lord goes beyond the first century and into our own because politics still has the ability to claim lordship in our lives, Because politics deal with the core of what a human's worldview is, it is so easy to pledge allegiance to a party subconsciously because the results of politics are so real and tangible. This is an honest challenge for me. As I was writing this, I was convicted deeply. I listened to a lot of podcasts on uh, the news, on politics... I read a lot of articles. I spend time doing what I call cultural research, reading uh, different news outlets. And for me, um, there is a huge temptation to be outraged at the outrage. (laughs) Just me. Maybe you find yourself, you're like, I'm just outraged. I'm like, I'm outraged at your outrage. (laughs) Love leads to empowering and protecting others. Outrage shows your cards that you're more interested in controlling others. Follow the outrage. Where does it go? Probably a place that's based in fear. Probably a place where your sentiment is if those people would just shape up, things would be better. You want to control them. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, not so he lo- he so loved the world that he figured out a way to control things. I think a lot of us, were governed by God who puts two trees in the garden and gives us a choice, but the way that we govern the people around us, whether they're friends or people online, is with no choice. You either shape up and do what I want you to do, or I'm going to tweet about it, or I'm going to post about it. Or I'm going to talk to you about it. Actually, nobody talks to anybody about it anymore. We just talk to other people about what is going on with them. (laughs) I think in our current political age, there is a massive temptation to allow politics to do what Jesus wants to do in your heart, which is define the vision of the kingdom. He wants to define the vision. And it can be easy to believe the narrative that what is broken in our world is systemic and what we should aim for is a system that is perfect. If we can just get people to vote a certain way, then probably the system will get fixed. What this fails to understand is that what is broken isn't a system. God didn't create systems that fell. He created people that fell. So his primary concern isn't with collective responsibility and systems, but with the heart of an individual and what you will choose to do with his truth. Recently I read this New York Times article on the New Evangelicals. The world was rocked by the statistic that 80% of Evangelicals voted for Trump. How could they? And so they began to interview these people, these young people between the ages of 22 and 27 who didn't vote for Trump. And uh, they began to uh, just kind of share their stories about where they're at politically. And I was grieved at the nature of young people's faith in America. Specifically for you Fox students, it is important that you value his presence above a political affiliation. This is what one of the gals had to say in the article. The world that I was dreaming about was not the world my church was dreaming about. The world liberal evangelicals want to see is the one conservative evangelicals hope doesn't happen. Two thoughts. Firstly, this reveals that Jesus isn't Lord. That our political affiliations have become so important that they have the potential to divide us. This is demonic. Assuming the worst about someone isn't a virtue. And there are people in this room who have opposite political views than you. And when you choose to assume the worst about them, what you're doing is you're disobeying the New Testament where it says, we no longer think of anybody according to the flesh, but according to what the Spirit has done in them. May we be an example of a church that values what Christ's blood has accomplished rather than how somebody voted. Secondly, the real sad part about this sentiment to me is that this young gal reminds us that our political parties have caused people to dream bigger dreams than their relationship with God has caused them to dream. And this shouldn't be the case. If you find yourself here this evening with more energy and zeal for your politics, go back and read the book of Acts. (laughs) Seriously. And here's the lens that you should read it with do I want my political vision more than I want this? My guess would be no. And so what this shows us is that when we have pledged our allegiance to a political philosophy, what we're doing is choosing where to level off with the kingdom in our lives. When I align myself with a dream of a political vision and I'm captured more by that than what the New Testament speaks about, what I've chosen is, hey, I've tasted some of your kingdom and I'm sure it could go deeper, but we've got a really good plan here. May that not be the case. Allow the possibility of the kingdom to weigh heavier than the vision of a particular party. If Jesus is Lord, then the political spirit must go, and our allegiance must be to his vision. Lastly, if Jesus is Lord, then our religion must go. Our religion must go. You know, the door to the kingdom doesn't have a code with a lockbox on it. The door to the kingdom has a person standing there, and it's Jesus. The access point to the kingdom is a relationship instead of a strategy. I've talked to many Christians um, down through the years who they make it a couple, they, they first meet Jesus and they are on fire. They're what we called back in the 90s, sold out. They're just like, I am in Bible studies all the time. I mean, when I was going when I was at George Fox, I was on fire. Fire! I thought everybody was on fire. I'm like, I'm sharing the gospel with anybody I can. I'm like, right before sociology class, I'm like, dude, so I just read this in Hebrews. It's crazy, right? And my, He's like, I've never even read Hebrews. What are you talking? What's Hebrews? So but I was just zealous. I remember I would spend like nights in the prayer chapel. I'm like, how come this isn't more full? Like, where is everybody? Let's pray, guys. They're like watching football or lost. That was back when Lost was on. I was like gosh, the tension, like prayer or loss. It's like lost one out too many times. Um, but you meet these people that are just zealous about the king. And then a couple years go by and the passion wanes a little bit. And I've had these conversations with followers of Jesus who say things like, man, I just wish there was like a formula or a system in place that could guarantee Christ-likeness. <laughs> and uh, And Donnie. Yeah, it's funny. As if you can replace what the spirit began with human ingenuity and effort. Why do people, why is that a sentiment? Why do people want that? Because a formula is easier than a relationship. A formula is much easier than relationship. A formula lays out the sacrifices at the beginning. It says, hey, so here's the deal. Here's what you're going to have to do. A relationship can surprise you by what comes to the surface in it and what may need to be pruned away. One way of life, you retain control. The other way of life, you say, here's my life, Lord, I lay it down. In one way, you're the king deciding what, to, what you're gonna do in order to be good with God. In the other way, he is the king who loved you beyond your ability to pay him back. See, religion is the idea that there are steps in place that allow you to achieve the promised goal of personal fulfillment, nirvana, or, or justification. But one of the things that is unique to Christianity that is not found in any other religion is that we believe in a moment everything can change. In one moment, everything can change. Uh, when I was going to George Fox, I had a, a um, semester where I studied abroad in Bolivia, and uh, while I was uh, in Bolivia, it was it was a beautiful time, um, but it was it was lonely. You know, I, I was there with a team of people, but I lived with a uh, Bolivian family, and I had a lot of free time on my hand. On my hands, this is like before iPhones. This is like it, it, the Dark Ages, and um, I had a guitar, and I spent my entire like four months there just worshiping, just constantly in worship. And what the Lord began to do in that worship was he began to bring things to the surface that needed to be surrendered. I, can, I consider that my, like, boot camp in surrender. And one of the, I, I, there were many things, but one of the biggest things that came to the surface was I had a need to get married. Anybody have that need? <laughs> You're like, me? You too? Okay, cool, let's talk afterwards. Um, <laughs> I had just this need I got to get married and I I remember um, I remember the Lord he told me I gosh I had this thought come into my mind and he's like no you're not supposed to get married in this life and I was like oh uh, what no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> I'm going to get married. He's like, no, no, I, I actually, this is how I didn't know anything about the monastery. You guys know the monastery out there. I don't know what town it's in, but just outside of Newburgh a little ways, there's that monastery out there. I, I had a friend of mine who, who had joined the monastery while he was at Fox. I'm like, you joined a monastery? And I remember wh- I'm having this conversation, this dialogue with God. And he's like, I, I want you to when you get home, take a vow of celibacy and join that monastery. <laughs> I'm like, what? And I remember I went back and forth wrestling, just, oh no, I'm not going to do that. God, you don't understand. And this one night, we, uh, we went out to dinner as a family, and I remember coming back from that dinner, and I, I went up to my room, and I just was sick of it. I was sick of the tension in my heart and I said, Lord, if there is a fork in the road and a one w- road is just me without you, but I get married and the other road is me with you and I don't get married, I'm choosing you. And I will never forget what happened in that moment. Just peace. Oh my goodness. Just, I practically, I just fell asleep. Peace came over me so powerfully. I remember him just saying, you don't worship in it anymore. Now I can give it to you. In a moment, everything changed. I didn't wrestle with it. I didn't struggle with it. I didn't need it anymore. So now I was free to enjoy it when it came. No other religion believes that that's possible. What they say is, hey, listen, uh, here's what you need to do. You need to pray this direction. You need to read this. You're going to fast on these days and you're going to do these things. And if you do those things, oh, there's a huge payoff waiting for you. We are the only religion that doesn't need a 12-step guide to freedom. We have one step, and it's come and die. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And when you do that, he says, I no longer call you a slave, I call you a friend. Religion creates a slave mentality by requiring performance in order to be loved. Relationship creates lovers. When you say Jesus is Lord, you move from the place of trying to earn his benefits to a place of receiving his benefits that come from him being king. The level of peace in your life is directly related to the level of which he's Lord in your life. I mean it. the challenge of Jesus being Lord is to move from the performing of tasks to the resting in his presence. When I was, uh, just started working at the church, I'd just graduated from George Fox, um, I just had this thing in me where if I didn't get up and read my Bible, I just felt horrible for the rest of the day. It was guilt and just like, oh gosh, I can't believe I didn't read my Bible. And what I realized is that me reading my Bible was a way that I performed to know that I was loved. And so I had this season where I just felt the freedom where God just said, don't read your Bible anymore. And he said, every morning, let's wake up and go on a walk together. And I would say this, every morning I'd wake up and I lived by Washington Park downtown. I'd walk up into the Rose Garden and I remember I would say to him, okay, I'm here. If you want to say anything, I'm here. And sometimes I would have a strong sense, sometimes I wouldn't. But what I was doing is, is, is what God was doing is he was teaching my heart that it was okay to be a son instead of a performer. Some of you, you wake up in the morning and you read your Bible and you fall asleep. (laughs) And you're like, oh, I can't, this is the word of God. (laughs) And uh, I can't think of a father who would ever get upset at his kid falling asleep in his lap. Some of you, you read the Bible and you're like, I don't even remember what I read today. I don't remember what I had for breakfast three days ago, but it still nourished me. entering, when you say Jesus is Lord, you are committing to a lifestyle of receiving rather than a lifestyle of performing. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to go ahead and receive communion as a family tonight. So I'm going to invite the people who are doing communion down to the front. I, I really can't think of a better thing than communion to teach our hearts that it isn't about what we do, but what we receive that counts. And this is the very act. When we take that body, that piece of bread, and we take the juice into our bodies, what we're saying with our physicality is, Jesus, you are Lord. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and a whole crowd starts following him. And the disciples are like, this is what we're talking about. This is what we've known all along. He's amazing. Follow him. And then Jesus decides to give the cannibal message he's like, hey, so it's so I'm so glad you guys are all here. Listen, here's the deal. Uh, you're going to need to eat my body and drink my blood. you cool with that? And it says, and I just read this earlier this week. It says, many turned their backs and stopped following him. <laughs> They're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> just go the other direction. Communion draws a line in the sand. I don't care how I look. I want him. The mob in anger before Pilate chanted as Pilate washed the blood off his hands. They said, then let his blood be on us. And every time, friends, when we come and we receive the body and the blood, we chant the same thing, but out of a heart of joy and gratitude. Let his blood be on us. Jesus, we just say thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the sacrifice that welcomed us home. In your name, amen. If Jesus is Lord, then our idolatry must go, the political spirit must go, our religion must go. But if Jesus is Lord, then the kingdom must come. It would be a shame to simply talk about his lordship tonight without experiencing it. Matthew 4.23 says that Jesus went into all the towns around Galilee, proclaiming the good news and healing every disease and every sickness. The proclamation of the kingdom wasn't complete without the demonstration of the kingdom. Jesus' lordship it actually leads us to a kingdom reality in which he is Lord over the body, so sickness must go. He is Lord over the heart, so identity must be put back in its place. He is Lord over the mind, so truth must replace lies. And what the gifts of the Spirit do is they take the mind of God and translate it into real circumstances, becoming more and more like heaven. So that's what we're going to do this evening as we continue to worship. I just want to invite the prayer team down. If there is um, anything in your body that is wrong, we want to pray for it. Jesus went, proclaimed the kingdom, and healed every disease. So if there's anything that is is not functioning correctly, uh, we want to pray for it. Secondly, if if you are conflicted about who you are and your identity, I just think there's something significant on tonight to receiving a prophetic word from God about who you are. Prophecy isn't looking into a globe and like telling the future. It's making God's thoughts known to other people. That's prophetic. That's what New Testament prophecy is. It's different than Old Testament prophecy. Yes, but Jesus fulfilled that kind of prophecy. So there's a new type of prophet. And uh, it's it's that all people would be prophets. All sons and daughters of him would dream dreams and prophesy. So we just believe that that happens it happens every week. It happened last week with a gal that I prayed for just a radical new vision for who she was in Christ. Beautiful beautiful stuff. Let's stand together and let's respond to him through worship. And if you need prayer for anything at all, come on down to the and encounter his love tonight.